Welcome to Verbal Art, a podcast where we talk about artsy stuff in different locations. Okay. Um, hi, welcome to Verbal Art, uh, an art podcast with me, Senja Ram, where I interview artists and other creative types about their jobs and their works. And maybe I'll just quickly arrange the mic. Uh, I'm today here in my school, Kuvataide Akademia, or in English, uh, the Academy of Fine Arts in Helsinki, uh, the Art Academy. Uh, with I forgot if you use your own name or an artist name, or I forgot to ask you. No, just Laura Lowe. So, um, Laura Lowe, we don't really actually know each other very well. <laughs> uh, I just know that you're a painting student here and painted these massive, beautiful paintings for the master's degree show this year. And that's why I asked if you would do this podcast. So maybe do you want to just introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Laura and um, I'm doing the master's program. Uh, here at the Academy of Fine Arts. I uh, started last year just as we were coming out of the pandemic. So it's been quite strange moving from a quite secluded, like cocoon-like working environment suddenly into back into a university. Um, I did my uh, BA in Japan studies and as an artist, please, I've taught. So coming in uh, back to study and also uh, for the first time being in a kind of professional art environment has been really, really exciting for me, uh, especially because my work is quite experimental, not, not what you'd consider maybe normal painting. I, I don't know if there's such a thing as normal painting, but I'm really happy to get into this topic because... Uh, this is episode 29 and I realized that I, I don't actually have that much content about painting in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So 29 episodes in and we still didn't really get into painting, which is ironic because every time I tell someone that I study in the art academy, they're like, so what do you do? You paint? <laughs> so it's the first thing that other people yeah. go to when they think artists, their mind jumps there. For a lot of people at least yeah. and so somehow it's the last place i am going to with this investigative series um yeah okay so you didn't study art before i'm quite amazed that you can get to study a master's in art if you didn't study a bachelor in art uh, it's not easy and it's i don't know anyone else who's done it from at least the current batch of people people studying here. Uh, uh, I had a studio for three years independently. Um, okay. Well, actually, there's one girl in my seminar group, Doa, who also doesn't come from art. Okay. And I interviewed Yunchen, which is like two episodes before this, who studied a master's in live arts and performance studies in Teag. Also haven't studied performance before, studied uh, linguistics or mm. literature or something like this before. 
I think it's increasing that the university is also starting to notice that people with alternative backgrounds and bringing a kind of interdisciplinary approach to whatever medium they're working with is actually very valuable. Yeah, and I mean, that is the really nice thing about studying fine arts is that people come from different mediums, but also from super different backgrounds. And especially since our university doesn't age discriminate, so people come from like full careers sometimes in other places. Like Lasse and his son, who got accepted in the same year and graduated in the same year. (laughs) And yeah, you know, that's quite amazing. (laughs) Um... But okay, can you help bring the listeners into this room? Like, help describe the space we're in? We're in your work studio, right? Yeah, this is my studio at the Academy, uh, which is in the new uh, uh, Mülle, which is the new main building for the Academy of Fine Arts that was only just uh, completed a year ago in September, a little bit more than that. Two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Just at the end of the pandemic. Or just just at the bit where we were slowly transitioning out. Yeah, when we were allowed, allowed to come back after Yes. After the lockdown. Yeah. And it's uh it's an old industrial building that's being converted into the school. And it's very Oh it's, it's they built it from scratch. This is a new building. No, 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 it isn't. It, it is. They tore down what was here before. There are parts of the old. Yeah. So, like, in each, there's the lighthouse, and then there's this old brick side here outside the window. But the building we're in now... Yes, yes, the main section. I mean, yeah. they've revamped it, but it's kind of... It's, be, it's recycling an old building. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, like, combining... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. ...old parts on each side. Sure. Yeah. But we're sitting in a brand-new concrete block. Yes, absolutely. A brand-new industrial... Uh, concrete block with uh, lovely large windows and a view of the old chimneys. Yeah, you have you can see a lot of the sky here. It's nice. Yeah, master students tend to get the better studios for uh, the last. Pain, oh. Painter students ah, tend well. to get the better studios. Well, it's, uh, for painting we do need light as a, an a essential <laughs> component. But yeah, so um, I've got some of my works here on the walls. And then along the sides, on the windowsill, I have my little pigment jars and my paintbrushes and, of course, my teapot. <laughs> what kind of tea do you like? I drink everything from uh, the mud and Chinese to black to uh, green and white and everything in between. And as it has caffeine in it. <laughs> <laughs> And we're looking at your graduation work. Um, yes. yes. So these two are the two of the structural color paintings that I exhibited for the MFA degree show. What What does that mean? Structural. Structural color. color. So structural color. Um, it's really what I based the whole of my MFA project on. Is color that is formed by light waves rather than by pigment. So this color effect you see here on the surface of the paintings 
Is it made with any pigment? No, it looks like an uh, oil spill. That's exactly what actually uh, was my uh, initial uh, inspiration to start researching um, uh, this project. It was the from my previous uh, studio last autumn, I on the other side of the building, I could see the Hanasari coal plant mm. and the large mountain of coal by it. Which they're now removing. Which it is it closed, yes, in uh, April. And mm. I've actually just been over there to collect some of the last coal. How so did you get over there? Isn't it shut off? I called them and I asked ah. if I could come and uh, collect some of their coal because it's it's I find it fascinating. It's um, so Hanasari is closing now, and next year they'll be closing Samisari on the other side of town. And these are the last coal plants in Helsinki, but also they represent a third of coal production in Finland. So really, this is like the death bell knolling mm. for coal in Finland. And I I find it very interesting, this like story of coal and fossil fuels and the transition and the cycles they've been through from a material that was formed 300 million years ago during an age when the whole planet was a gigantic swamp with trees that were as wide as my arm span that went up three times higher than our normal trees today the skyscraper world of trees. And those trees fell into the swamp with very little oxygen and most importantly bacteria that like break down cellulose and lignin hadn't evolved yet. Mm-hmm. So all of that tree mass just got compacted and that's where all of our coal comes from 300 million years ago. And to find this iridescent color that comes out of basically fossil ancient life for me was uh, really really exciting so I wanted to go and collect a little bit of it and I'm going to be grinding down these little lumps of coal that I have for pigment for for the continuation of this series of paintings. Oh. And also are you from Helsinki or? Yes. I mean, it's also like a cultural landmark, right? This pile of coal over there that people are talking like it has been a a neighborhood landmark since the age of time almost, but at least since the 80s or something, people are talking that it has really been like... Well, it's the only mountain we have. Helsinki and and Finland is such a low-lying country. And it does look like a mountain in the winter when there's snow on top of it, and then it looks like a small snow-capped mountain. And yeah, it's quite something so now that it's getting removed people are like so culturally here like oh what they're removing this pile of coal that has been there my whole life and (laughs) now the area will look different now you can like see across the harbor to Kalasatama where you could not see before it's quite wild so you also will be saving like a local legend yeah in your painting I work a lot with ideas about landscape, mm. so it really is a part of the landscape of my surroundings, Do you and con- this kind of hybrid nature as well, which is looks like a natural, well, I mean, of course it is natural material, mm. but uh, a landmark, a mountain made by humans. Yeah, yeah. Yes, a, a synthetic uh, natural landscape 
because it is also in the hopper, so but it's like man-made hopper. Yeah, it's. Do you consider these paintings to be landscape paintings? I do. I see a lot of landscape in them. Perhaps um, a lot of people wouldn't identify them as such. Can you help describe them to the listeners so they know what we're looking at? Sure. So on the right side we have um, a large black painting. Um, When we say large, how large are they? So both of the paintings are two meters tall and 180 wide. So they're quite quite big, even for like a tall person, they um, they are immersive and large enough that it kind of sucks you into the center of the painting. You feel immersed in it when you stand in front of them. Yeah, like four square meters is a large canvas. Yes, yes. Um, and um, the surface of the black painting on the right has um, this, in parts, this kind of crumbly texture which... Um, uh, consists of areas that have been broken up where the oil painting surface have been broken up with solvents and also areas where texture has been built up using glass shard it's kind of glass powder and dust uh, a lot of my process are very very toxic I use a lot of very small fine pigments a lot of uh, alternative materials such as glass and then a lot of um, Alcud oil paints, which require me to basically kit up and suit up into a mask and a uh, gloves and everything when I'm working. And do you grind everything yourself? Did you like grind the glass or do you buy it as? I've done a bit of both. Okay. Uh, for these ones, I've used ready-made things just because the scale is so large. Uh, I mean, you would just... have to just like grind forever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just the amount of oil paint on each one of these is about. Um, three of these one liter okay. tubs of paint. So that's just just in terms of oil that has a hundred euros worth of oil on it in mm. a single painting. Um, and then on top of the surface, which is very kind of glass-like and highly reflective, mm. there's this layer of iridescence. Um, so structural color that's very similar to like an oil slick or perhaps a rainbow. Um, so bubbles. Yeah. Um, which uh, forms uh, the colors through light reflections. So the paintings change quite a lot depending on the lighting. Depending on where they're exhibited and what time of day. Absolute time of day, weather, seasons. Mm. Um, They also react and are incredibly sensitive and fickle to the presence of the viewer. So if you walk past it, your shadow will disturb the surface, mm, of eclipse the painting in a way, like the moon eclipses the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if the angle of the light is right, it may actually start reflecting and mirroring your face. Because some parts of it are like really super pa- smooth and very yeah, shiny. Very mirror polished indeed. Uh, um, and so you can see yourself merging into the colour and merging into this uh, kind of abstract painting that kind of perhaps resembles um, a mountain landscape. Or like a little bit if like if there's a rain puddle mm. and with an oil spill from a car and like you could mirror yourself in it but mm. it would be obscured. So this is quite similar but just, just on the wall. And, Absolutely. Yeah. I think for me I'm interested in landscape and environment but I'm not interested in presenting it as a view. 
I'm, like a natural, like here it's a painting I'm, of a valley or yeah, a, a kind field. of traditional perspective painting that like Claude or Lorraine, mm. for example, might do. I'm far more interested in the experience of it as a material thing, as sediment, as earth, as you know what what the actual consistency of that our surroundings is, and with this painting, which is called. Um, at the Mountains of Madness, uh, referencing H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's story um, of uh, an exploration team in the Antarctic. Um, so I was ex- thinking a lot about ice and how melting and thawing and uh, translucency work. And, rather, yeah, seeing the landscape as subject rather um, as yeah subject rather than object and also because it's like an abstracted landscape painting it's could either be like super up close like magnified or it could be like an aerial from very very far away absolutely they have this blurring of the microcosmic and Mm. the macrocosmic Uh, and especially with these colors being so ethereal and otherworldly. A lot of people do also say that they see like a cosmic landscape in it. Yeah, it's Nebula a little bit like a moon surface or something because of this like black grayish looking and yeah. So you literally just painted it black first and then added this shiny holographic thing on top <laughs> no not quite no um, so it, it it works very much similarly to um renaissance paintings these old master paintings that are layered so there is indeed um a black ground which um i've done in ink uh, using japanese sumi ink in this case uh, and then on top of that i start working um with um kind of semi-transparent layers um as well as wiping. So I'm kind of building an underpainting by wiping out highlights and adding depth where I want darkness to happen. And then all of this is oil painting that you're adding on top of the ink? Yep. So then I'm starting to work with um, oil mediums. I use both oil paint as well as alkyd, which is a kind of faster drying, uh, thicker oil paint. And I put that on in layers and layers and layers and layers um, to build this kind of vitreous, translucent surface. Very much like a glaze in um, traditional painting. So these kind of layers that let light bounce in and through. And embedded into those layers, I add pigments and materials that help add reflectivity. So this kind of um, metallic pigment that's visible here as well as the glass shards all help um, they all really serve the light and the light's movement in through the layers and bouncing back out and they also create like texture and visceral elements yep and uh, the materials for me um, do a lot of the speaking and a lot of the communicating so it's very much a process of painting that uh starts or works on the premise of collaboration so the materials tell me what they want to do the oil will tell me how it wants to pool how it wants to drip how it wants to spread and i 
kind of I'm trying to learn to follow the natural elemental tendencies or the, the physical laws of nature that control all, all matter around us and, and see how gravity affects it, see how viscosity affects it, see how it reacts and responds to temperature and light. So when you paint a painting like this, is it upright like now standing up against the wall or is it on the floor? Uh, it's a bit of both. So um, a lot of the uh, layers I have to build up need to be very thick and very translucent. So those layers I often do on, on the floor. But it's it's a very kind of bodily process. So I spin them around, they're on the floor, they're on the wall. Um, and I often don't know which way is going to be up and which way is going to be down uh, until... Okay, after finished. Uh, yeah, until we're at the very, very end. It's kind of... Uh, I often think of them as like topography when they're, you know, mm. laid flat, that there's this kind of landscape happening as a, a relief or a, as a depth map. Can I just... I know you said that you're sitting on your regular chair, but it's, I can hear the squeaking. The squeaking. And the thing is, I know it's going to be hell in the editing to remove it because once I amplify it into someone's ears. So can I ask you to sit on this one? No problem. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, so um, how thick is the is the layer on this is it canvas or is it up there canvas absolutely yes and so how thick is the final layer i know there's the difference to like different parts of the painting obviously because like different parts are like more protruding than others but do you know approximately how thick a layer you end up with um it's uh that's difficult to say with these i mean it's a lot thicker than what it looks yeah But it's perhaps, I mean, it's some millimeters. Yeah. Um, but so the final layer, which um, causes this iridescence, um, is incredibly thin. Yeah. That's uh, just it, like a coating. Yeah. In order to, in in order to, well, it's it's traditional. These are all traditional uh, painting materials. Mm -hmm. So it's not a specialist pigment you could buy from a shop. Okay. Um, it's a normal um, painting medium, but I manipulated in the laboratory uh, so that on a nanostructural level uh, it starts to reflect light. And really I need to stretch it on the nano level so that it's anywhere between 100 to 800 nanometers thick. In, in comparison, a human hair is 100,000 nanometers thick, so 10 times thinner than a single human hair. But how do you do that? Well, good alchemist never reveals her secret. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But like, can you just like uh, explain the gist of it? Like, it sounds very, uh, like you say, like alchemy and the lab and stuff. But I mean, like me, the good thing about today's episode is that I am like most of the listeners. I don't actually understand that many of these painting terms. So mm. when you say it's like, is normal painting medium? I don't know. I know that painting medium can be a lot of things. Well, it's it's, it's like a varnish. Okay. So it's, um, it's a clear liquid medium that I use that um, 
any painter would have in their studio probably most painters would recognize and what does it normally get used for not to create just iridescent a, no just thing. to make a, a nice glossy top coat so it like it is just like a shiny yeah. lacquer coat okay yeah. and uh, it's only kind of through the transmutation of and the manipulation of it in the laboratory that makes it do something completely different and start to uh, iridesce because you like manipulated with uh, other chemicals or solvents um, or yeah there's okay. a whole process i have to go through in the lab um, okay and is that a technique you developed yourself or did you like f research and find the recipe or no i um this is a technique that i've developed myself oh. so it, it was a whole it took almost a year of research um to to create this way of painting and to learn to first to learn to manipulate these materials so that they can actually start forming this uh, iridescence. And of course the iridescence doesn't just work on the top layer, uh, the top layer kind of activates it, but it's the light passing through all of these translucent layers and bouncing back, which causes the color. So you couldn't just smear this on like the black no, canvas straight away, you do need these layers of uh, glass and things. Yeah. Okay. And uh was it hard to learn to control this technique incredibly yeah. yes um there was there is a lot of research into structural colors for uses in industry um as well as there's a lot of research happening into it right now even in finland um My colleague Nora Yao at the uh, Alta University is researching how to make iridescent uh, uh, materials out of cellulose, oh, wow. um, which is really exciting. And uh, her process is very hush-hush and secret as well, but I've had lots of really lovely conversations with her and she has offered a lot of insight into uh, her understanding of how it works and uh, as well as like offering resources and, and recommendations on where to look. Oh, that's so nice. And also maybe Mala, the uh, materials teacher here in our yeah. school, has been a good support, I presume. Yes, Mala Tahadukwiren is is, uh, is an angel sent from heaven. Like she, a wizard. Yeah, <laughs> she really let me go crazy in the lab. She said, mm. here, take these, try everything. Oh, you want to cook it? Sure, try cooking it. It's flammable, but whatever. Like, just test everything and you'll get there. And we have this materials teacher who um, is actually, I think, is trained as a chemist, uh, but then um, is teaching like uh, painting materials as a as a technical uh, in-depth course where students like do these year-long courses where they learn how to create their own pigments and stuff. Yeah, I mean, Mala's, like, the primary reason I wanted into this academy. Okay, you knew that she was studying yes. here. Or, like, that she was and teaching. That she was teaching here, and she mm. was absolutely the number one reason I wanted in. I mean, I never took the course because I, I don't paint, and it's a really dedicated course, but uh, everyone who ever took it says it's amazing. Yeah. So I always even considered taking it just <laughs> because. But I don't know, it's... Uh, It's a lot of time to invest in, in some skills that you don't see yourself mm. using. Yeah. No, it's it's been wonderful. Um, I've been very interested in 
kind of exploring landscapes and paintings that give you a sense of change happening in the environment. Mm. And also this kind of idea of a painting living and dying, of the light coming into, sparking into life and then fading back away and the paintings being very much this living thing that respond to the environment mm. and that we respond to them. We have to walk around them, we have to engage with them um, in order to build a relationship with them, in order what? to communicate with them. And so it's been wonderful having this resource of um, the materials lab and being able to research pigments and materials. Well, you have talked quite a lot now about like people engaging physically with the work, like going closer near or seeing their own reflection. But as far as I remember from the degree show, they were installed quite high up on the wall. These two were a little bit higher up, yes. Um, there was 50 centimeters from the floor, so the eye level was about at 150. Um, which gets you roughly so that your eye level is in the middle of the painting. Okay. So not, not that high. Not up. that high, so you could physically it's a, still... It's a classic, like, close. MoMA. Mm. MoMA high, yeah. Uh, and I like what you said just before, um, a painting living and dying. And now we talk about, like, materials and stuff. So how is the normal lifespan of oil paintings? Like, do they keep well with time? They do, absolutely. Um, More than acrylics? Oh, absolutely. Abs absolutely, 100 million percent. Um, acrylics are very problematic because they have a static um, to them. So, like, you have a lamp, you know, a plastic lamp at home. It gathers that, you know, nasty muck of dust on the top that really sticks to the lamp. Mm. So every single acrylic painting as well has this little static energy to it and it sucks dust to it, oh. literally. And the, unlike an oil painting that can handle quite a lot of abuse, it can handle a wet wipe, you know? Mm. Uh, you can't really do this kind of mechanical wiping on an older acrylic painting. So it's harder to restore it and yeah. maintain it. The museums in Germany, for example, a lot of the contemporary museums there and the modern art museums that have um, acrylic paintings have had to put their acrylic paintings under glass. Mm. Uh, now, you don't need to do that with an oil painting. Uh, and especially oil paintings as well, you have the option always to varnish, so you can put an extra layer on top. Um, now, my paintings are made with a particular sturdy type of um, kind of modern synthetic oil which has resin mixed into it mm. and this is actually an industrial paint so this would be used in coating boats okay so this is outdoor hardy uh, oil paint that we've got here on the surface because I wanted to ask if you have like kind of developed this technique yourself and of this way of treating the, the materials then do you know how they will last like do you, do you know if they if if you have treated them in a well so, way so that they will last better or worse or oh sure there's um there are other painters um exploring structural color and iridescence mm. there's um Nira Hod, for example and Dina Bukinen who are 
working with similar kind of uh, materials and similar kind of processes. So they will stay shiny in this way? Yeah. Presumably forever? I, I don't see any issue with it, and of course, if there was something that would happen to the surface layer, it, it can be removed and reapplied. Oh, you can remove a surface of the painting? Yeah. How? You just wipe it down. With what? With uh, you'd have to wipe it down with the solvent. I mean, it would change uh, this iridescent layer, but um, in a way, I'm not so terribly precious about them that if that would need to be done in the future, I would prefer the. Uh, the phenomenon, I think, comes first, mm. and the brush stroke is there to reveal the phenomenon. But no, I don't see any issue with these lasting several hundred years. And if you were to, I've had them actually by the, I've had the test plates like on the windowsill exposed to see how the sun. Yeah, nothing so far. Okay, been a whole year in the sunlight, so. Um, oh, you had small test plates yes. in the window the whole year. I got this wow. little one of so the one of the <laughs> kind of funny things about this process is that I've done these two huge two meter paintings, mm. but almost ninety percent of my work is making tiny little five by five centimeter little test samples in the fume hood in the laboratory, and so I've got these little plates, just dozens and dozens of plates with tiny little squares of tests, which I've then tried to like scale up. Which and then you write down like the whole recipe and process for it's, each little tile and you have this yes, like, are you gonna exhibit that as one work at some point? Like this, uh, I don't know, I just, I see this like beautiful research <laughs> visualization. I might at some point, yeah. Um, currently, my uh, notes are a bit all over the place, but yeah, it's it's mm. very much a kind of scientific process of mm. how much of this I added, how much of this, which are the conditions, what is the result, and doing just test sample after test sample after test sample but to also, understand how the material behaves. But you have also all these beautiful little uh, glass bottles with cork uh, uh, closings and like little handwritten uh, labels and stuff with your pigments in the window so it is like this uh, lab set design or like old school alchemist so I, I think handwritten notes about like alchemist process all over the place is very appropriate <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't affect the, the pigments to be in the window in the sun no these ones are fine okay they'll be alright um, most of these pigments are um, metal, metal-based pigments, and they will react. Okay. And if you were to start wiping off part of your painting, or like, yeah, removing, is it then just like that you wipe layer after layer off, like in reverse of how you added them, or like so you could like remove just a shiny layer and everything would else would be stay. the iridescent layer yes so the the rest of the painting being um, a very firm kind of uh, alkyl oil paint that won't go anywhere that um, you could not remove even no. if you wanted no but it, it's it's the kind of paint that uh, is extremely sturdy okay um, so that, that I'm not concerned well I'm not really concerned about any of these uh, layers but if there was a damage to the top layer mm. which is really what causes you know the color then that could be easily rectified, very easily repaired, which I think is good. I think paintings need to be sturdy and they also need to be 
yeah, easy to conserve. Because I think there's a big problem these days of a lot of people doing very experimental paintings, which, yes, you could repair or conserve in some way, but often it's very time-consuming or costly, and many, many paintings don't get conserved just because of the time and budgetary constraints. Also, the education for like mm. art conservation is a super tiny study mm. program in many countries, and you need to have like very high, uh, like levels of math and physics and chemistry mm. and everything. Like it's really, it's it's not easy to get into. It's very few that get educated within. Mm within art conservation. Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's been so wonderful to have this material studies lecturer mm. who is the one of the top, still one of the top conservators in the country, uh, consulted by all of the painters. Um, so it's been really reassuring to have her discuss each material with me. Sure. So that I know what the do's and don'ts are, and the limitations of the material, and it's aging. But So what is your background? You said you're self-taught as an artist, so um, before you came here and met Mala and learned about all these materials, did you learn about them yourself before? Did you know about any of this, or did you start working in a completely different way during your studies? Um, I already knew about um, this, so I was... Um After I'd done my BA, I was living in London and I was working at the British Museum, you know, among all the dusty statues and... Doing what? Uh, oh, just a custom service and mm. being a gallery girl and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, front house work. Mm -hmm. um, but it meant that all day long I was surrounded by historical as well as scientific displays and exhibits and I got really obsessed with um, the kind of scientific gaze and how we present uh, both art as well as natural science, natural uh, history mm. um, and I started doing taxidermy uh, collecting wow. specimens like yeah. self-taught from the internet or did you take a course? oh I took a course um, well a bit of both What was the first animal you stuffed? I believe it was a mouse or a rat. You know, something small. Is it a difficult? No. Is it nasty? No, no it isn't. No, because you just... <laughs> Sorry, this might be a bit graphic for your listeners, but you basically only peel the skin off the animal. Okay. So all you're really dealing with is the flesh and the skin coming off each other. There's no you know, insides or nasty business okay. like that. And it, it's very, it's what you might buy from the shop, really. You know, so do you make them, like, look funny or do something, or do you make, like, n very realistic nature scenes? Um, I started making these kind of art objects. Okay. So they were, they weren't quite anthropomorphic, but they weren't quite natural history displays either. But these... Things that I described as relics. Uh, and like the animals became relics? Mm, something that's imbued with more than a little that kind of natural history display. So they were... I was interested in the suspended animation. Mm. The idea of it 
being that we know that the natural history display is all faked, yeah. and yet that's considered objective and neutral under the scientific gaze, that we make these things for museums, and yeah, yet yeah. it's all... Um, we're more obsessed with the illusion, we're more concerned with the trickery than, uh, than preserving the actual like flesh contents. Mm. So uh, yeah, I was I was interested in that, and I got into all kinds of specimens and collecting. And where do you get the animals? Oh, you source them ethically. So there's a lot of roadkill, for example. Do you go and find them yourself in the road? Yeah, or if you have friends, they'll say, "Hey, I don't buy something in the queue. Shall I bag it for you?" <laughs> yes. Oh, okay, but you can also, if you're starting out, you might buy, uh, like reptile food, for example. So frozen rats and things. That's that's an easy way to start because they're clean, and they're fresh, and so you learn to to do what you need to do, and you learn to recognize whether something is fresh enough that you can, you know, work what, with it. What are the health hazards? I mean, if you find like a roadkill rat. Should you really touch it? I mean, obviously, gloves. Yeah, are required. Um, but you skin it, you dispose of the insides, and then you you wash it with soap. You know, okay. you 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 uh, absolutely need to clean it. Uh, I did not know this episode was going to be about skinning <laughs> roadkill. <laughs> But interesting sidetrack. But yeah, I've done bunnies and crows and birds and. Do you have them at home? Yeah, it's it's a bit more difficult here in Finland because the, the laws are very strict here. But there so must be so there much isn't road a road. Kill, but in Finland, the roadkill, um, the law only limits it to certain animals. So you can't take anything that's okay dead on the side of the road. Whilst in the UK, it's like if it's dead, animals. you found it. That's all right. <laughs> Keepers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> one man's treasure, you know, is another. So in Finland, treasure. if it's like too big, you have to call someone or what? If it's, for example, game, then yeah, the the local game um, association. association owns it. Technically, mm. you can ask for it. Sure. Game being things that people hunt for yes. eating. And then animals that in Finland are protected by the law, mm. uh, anything like that. If you find it, you need to apply. To the local elu, the local um, environmental uh, center, mm. for a permit to use it. Because technically, um, anything you find dead in Finland, you're not, you don't have the right to pick it up. Mm. Belong, it doesn't belong to these kind of every man's rights. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, okay. so I got really obsessed with kind of natural history and the science of it and the history of yeah, it's how science circled back to the yeah, painting. natural history. <laughs> And when I moved back to Finland, I discovered the BioArt Society, mm, yeah. uh, which is a is an, a collection of artists who kind of explore this kind of bridge point between arts and sciences. They do a lot of work with technology and medical works and biology. And, and facilitate like a platform for it. They used to have a gallery and oh, they, they run do. a... They just moved. They, ha- they have a new space now? Yes, oh, they're in Kalasatama nice. next to the Huto ah, new gallery. It's wonderful Yeah, Just around the corner. They have a gallery and they run a residency program. Oh, and yes, up, they've got one up in... Uh, the very north of Finland, that's right, Gilgisjärvi. Yeah. 
Yeah, so like they are wonderful. W Art Society yeah. people. Yeah. I have met some of them. Great people. So I started through them kind of to understand that what I was really going after mm. was a kind of collaborative process with the natural materials um, and things that have that suspended animation, that idea of living and dying. But um, now in a super abstracted manner. Mm. And so I've always painted on the side. And okay. so it's kind of just one of those things where all this obsessiveness uh, and all this like madness and mania for this natural history collecting and my paintings just kind of started merging into each other. Mm. And with the painting process, I was doing quite traditional, you know, kind of painterly landscapes. Before? Uh, before this, this kind of very radical jump. A, a year year ago or so, I was still doing kind of very depictive landscapes. But like with same kind of materials also? Oil paints. Yeah. yeah. Same scale? Um, I was doing quite big ones, yeah. That's okay. Lots of different sizes. But I, I just hit a wall. I just got so frustrated with this idea that I'm making these very romantic images of you know untouched forests and 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 fields and landscapes that are very dreamlike and that that are kind of rooted in a, a historical painting tradition a historical painting tradition that's very much dictated by kind of a biblical framework right nature as man's paradise nature is something given to us as a uh, to own to like, to do with as we please to alter to um, to kind of have for our pleasure garden and I just started thinking this idea of a pleasure garden of paradise of untouched wilderness out there somewhere is it's, it seems frankly mad in this age where <laughs> our whole conversation, our whole relationship with the environment is constantly being bombarded by anxiety and worry about mm. climate change and, and uh, environmental catastrophes. And I just, I felt that this wasn't an appropriate way to paint anymore. And this wasn't, this wasn't a depiction of, of landscape or of our environment in this day and age. They were they were this kind of weird nostalgia and nostalgia won't save us yeah i mean a lot of this romanticized uh, landscape uh, painting is super like old school national romantic times right yes. like in denmark as well so you went from painting dreamy romantic landscapes to painting um abstract nightmare landscapes instead well, I, yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, I not something in, not I said in a bad way, but they're all quite dark and like, mm. uh, you know, like you're getting swallowed in some like a mm. storm of, of of black thick oil or this dark cloud we can talk mm. about in a moment. Or <laughs> yeah, for me it's very important that they feel real, yeah. that they feel uh, connected to our reality. So when you look at the surfaces, you think that this could be earth, this could be sediment, this could be rock, that could be mm. the surface of ice or the the surface of a uh, pool of water, that they have a connection uh, 
to our surroundings, mm -hmm. but also that they acknowledge that sense of uncertainty, of anxiety, of maybe a fear of the unknown. So I very much like the idea of dystopia, where we're going into fantasy. But I do find that my the the kind of landscapes that resonate the most with me are those of the kind of Gothic literature tradition. So that's why the paintings as well got their names from H.P. Lovecraft. But this kind of landscape that's presented, for example, in uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the landscape is a canvas that mirrors human emotions, that the landscape responds to humans and humans are responding to the landscape. It has this something about it that's very uh, reciprocal, that there's a conversation going on between landscapes and humans and also that acknowledge that we are a part of this ecosystem. We are part of the landscape. Yeah. Also, it's yeah. like the landscape, as you said, it just does not really exist separated from us, like out there in some kind of vacuum. It might have done like back in the day at some point. I don't Untouched know. Untouched wilderness, <laughs> yeah. really. But all of the paintings are still like that. If you think about a lot of these, you know, big names in contemporary painting, whether it's, you know, the English pastoral idols of David Hockney or um, Peter Doig's with these kind of explorers in exotic virgin jungles or even Mama Anderson who does these like gorgeous landscapes which are rooted in very much like a Nordic romantic tradition they're all depicting a kind of Yeah, a kind of nostalgic landscape almost, or something that's very idealized, that isn't really in touch with how we feel about landscape. Mm -hmm. Whilst if you compare, for example, what sculpture and installation and uh, particularly land art mm -hmm. is doing in response to landscapes is a lot more conversational with human interventions and these ideas of hybrid landscapes and and our involvement in the landscape and our, whether you want to call it contamination or um, or it's even more positive light. But anyway, this idea that there is a back and forth uh, and a codependency. Do you think that's because some of these mediums or techniques you mentioned, installation art and land art and stuff, they are way newer, like way more modern, did not exist as long back, as far back as painting did, that painting mm -hmm. is a super old school medium. And so do you think that people also get a little bit stuck in like the old school style of painting? Mm. Is there yes, something to that? Yes, absolutely. The deep rooted history of painting is one of the things that does, um, It does mean that you are chained to something, and uh, You're chained in a very uh, like traditional art history. Yes, yeah. and of course, it's doubly it's it's doubly more difficult for a painter because most painters become painters because they have such a deep love for these works. Hmm. I love all of the painters I've just mentioned, but I just know that it's not for now, for this day and age. Um, But yes, yeah, so I think really the moment where I started thinking about landscape painting 
pushing into uh, our moment was uh, Anselm Kiefer's work. I saw his big retrospective at 20... It was 2012 or 2014 uh, uh, at the Royal Academy in London. Mm. And his landscape seemed to have this idea of anxiety and calamity and change happening. Uh, now, of course, he isn't really interested in depicting landscapes at all. His works are all about reflecting our recent history and the war and uh, using landscapes as memorials mm. in a way identifying them with the places that the major battles happened uh, during the Second World War. And so it's a form of history painting rather than landscape painting. But I recognized in them this kind of idea of uncertainty and of, of um, environmental crisis. Mm, but I think the reason why painting has struggled to respond the same way that, for example, installation land art uh, have is not just about the age and the heritage it's it's about the actual essence of what painting is the whole idea of a painting is to capture a fleeting moment right think about a a, a, a painting you know like like a romantic dutch painting with like a vase of tulips right you're capturing that moment of those tulips in bloom of their freshness and you're putting something living into a dead, inanimate material form on canvas. But it's actually squashing the living into a frozen moment is kind of a form of killing it. <laughs> but what about painting something from your imagination? That's not capturing something in a moment of time. That's about, like, creating. Mm, but it's still a freeze frame. Yeah, you inevitably create well, that's, a freeze that's frame. true. Yeah, that's true. So that was the biggest challenge for me. And that's why it's so important that, like, the light and the movement around yes. the painting actually yeah. changes so how it looks. The painting actually lives. It actually mm. reacts. It's not just about building an illusion of something happening. It's not about freezing the moment. It's about being in the moment. Still life that is yeah. actually living. Yeah. So and and the paintings, they really do have that kind of transient quality to them. That you come into the room and it might look com like a completely dark surface, hmm. and then you walk past it thinking, "Ah, oh, that's dark, monochrome, boring thing," and then suddenly light flashes, color flashes from a corner, and. It's that wonderful feeling of shock that you have as a child when you see uh, a magic trick or a balloon where you're absolutely fully and totally immersed in the moment of something happening, of a transformation, mm. of uh, ecstasis. Of, uh, uh, it's, it, there's something about it that's quite... Um, like I, I find it almost like a miracle or, or there's this kind of analogy that you could make that something seemingly appears out of nothing mm. and there's something incredibly profoundly hopeful in this Lazarus moment where something that you can't quite believe should happen or that is possible appears in front of your very eyes and I mean honestly iridescent 
holographic shiny surfaces have always been super magic. I mean, who did not as a child stop by a, an oil spill in a puddle on the asphalt and be like, oh, wow. They, they captivate. It's be- beautiful. <laughs> There's a rainbow in the puddle. Um, did you consider exhibiting them with this in mind and like controlling it more so to have like animated light or things happening in the space to like superimpose this experience on people or do you always want it to be natural light or do you have opinions on this um i'm in a way so new to the painting and the material and i've been very obsessed with the painting process that i haven't actually had a lot of time to think about Mm. presentation um, but I do have an exhibition coming up in September uh, at Galleria Rayatila in Tampere. Mm. And it will be my second uh, exhibition outside of Helsinki, so I'm very excited. But I've, I've, uh, I'm exhibiting in their black box. So okay. they've got this completely dark black box. So there space. will be no natural light. Yeah, so it will be very exciting to see how they behave and what creatures they become in in this kind of dramatic chiaroscuro lighting and uh, did you test them with different kinds of light sources because like of course with light it's um it's waves and stuff and so mm. there's a big difference to sunlight and different types of electric light yep like a light bulb or led diffuses the light in super different ways uh so did you test it with like different kinds of light sources and and see how that affects it? Yeah, absolutely. So um definitely the stronger the light is and the more broad spectrum like white light um you can get like sunlight basically mm-hmm. um the more intense the colors show. Mm. Um but with it it's been very frustrating here in the studio because we have these Wonderful high-tech LED lights with oh, this lovely milk, milky kind of uh, cover. LED tube lights. Yes, and they don't point at the wall where the paintings are. They paint straight down. No, and also you can't control them individually. So, mm. like, it's controlled for, in some of the spaces, for 30 people by one switch. Yeah. Which and is just crazy. As well... Even though I have this gorgeous three-meter window, these windows have uh, a darkened film on them, a coating. Really? So actually, the light that I'm getting in the studio... It's not pure sunlight. No, it's, uh, it's, it's got a filter on it, which is really a pity. Uh, and it, it, it does make it very challenging for me to paint in this space. So when I have a painting that's, you know, getting there, almost finished... I actually carry it around the academy. <laughs> yes, I take this two-meter painting and I go into the elevator and I carry it around the building and I take it outside and I take it downstairs to the first floor and I take it up to the top floor uh, onto the roof balcony. To just check it out in different spaces? see Whoa. it in different lights. And I'll, I'll sometimes leave it in some spaces here and put a little sign saying light test going on. Please do not touch. Because it it really... They really are different creatures, uh, whether it's the evening light or whether the light comes from a lateral side direction or so on and so forth. So uh, uh, the kind of the the act of viewing is very, very important in these pieces. Um, Yeah, wow. But I mean, that's 
it's heavy to carry around, no? It's really big. Oh, it's 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 heavy, sure. But um, <laughs> so the in in addition to these two pieces, of course, for the final uh, degree show, I made uh, one four meter painting uh, called Orpheus, which was made of three panels. So they were. Yeah, where is that one? Uh, that's set in a bigger storage. Okay. But yeah. yeah, so this painting here on the left is the prototype I made for that. Yeah, that I'm wow. working on. Um, but I yeah, that painting was made with this kind of three-dimensional surface that extends out of the canvas more than 30 centimeters. It really kind of oozes and pushes out. And yeah, it felt like it was growing out of the wall yeah. and almost like about to like fall on you like a tsunami wave yes. because it was hanging super high up. Yeah, And it was a very top-heavy composition, so Orpheus had this huge mass of uh, weight at the very, very top, and so you kind of felt like you were in a cave or under a precipice. And the surface, uh, even though it was... Um, yeah, what's it made with? Like um, making so something protrude 30 centimeters out mm -hmm. from the canvas is quite a lot. I mean, you do really have to think like a sculptor at this mm. point. So I used a lot of um, uh, chicken wire to build the framework and then polyurethane to build up this mass. And then I had this impasto um, kind of mass material that I made myself out of cellulose mm. that I chucked onto it, literally having to throw it <laughs> onto the canvas. And it ended up being 60 kilos. Oh, wow. With that top panel being half of that. So that's it's not kilos. so easy to carry around. It, I mean, I was doing it myself. We don't have assistance. It's like carrying for around that. an eight-year-old. But uh, it was. Uh, it meant that the doing the master's project was really physically intense, and so in a way, these two smaller two-meter paintings. Um, these are the little paintings. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean. It, this year's degree show somehow was the most maximized degree show I've ever seen in my five years here. The The master's degree show is always quite large, that people go like larger than life because it's like their final something and somehow the academy emphasizes this whole degree work as like the peak of our careers, somehow the epitome of what we can produce <laughs> and everything we do after will be based on this this work, which I think is a weird emphasis to put and, and a weird um, attitude. But also I think this new space, because it's so like tall and weird, uh, it's large without being, there's not that many square meters, but it feels extremely large in the way that it just, I don't know. It's, I think that people went even larger because everyone feels like they're drowning in the bad acoustics and the like big oh. staircases and, I don't know, everyone, like even the people who make smaller works, they made then huge installations with the smaller works, or you know what I mean? Oh no, my colleague Tommy here on the other side, yeah. he made very, very small sweet Yeah, but he took a whole wall with so many small. Usually Tommy exhibits like one or two small mm. paintings at a time, True. maybe. But this time was like a whole wall full of small mm. paintings. I mean, personally, I don't, I did not feel any pressure on the side of the masters or the university to make big. I just thought I have this for once in my life. I have this huge amount of materials that I can get from the university mm. for free. I have all this support 
when it comes to building the work? I mean, my, my, our, our lecturers and uh, professors were incredible. They moved whole classes out of rooms for me so I could cocoon with Orpheus and get that work done. <laughs> Because you also cannot actually paint in this room, you said, right? Because yes, because I need to wear the mask and I need to have toxic. The, yeah, ventilation. So they gave gave up classrooms and made space for me. And I had I received a lot of free material from the university. And you get a grant to do the master's project. So I thought, when am I going to have the opportunity to make something <laughs> mad, <laughs> for, for want of a better word, that isn't tied to financial pressures, mm. that isn't tied to the constrictions of however small my studio will be after I graduate. Um, and that, that I mean, very few galleries have spaces where you can exhibit a painting that's four meters tall. There's maybe one or two places in the whole of Helsinki that can do anything that high. So I thought, I've had this dream of making this cave-like oozing... <laughs> metamorphic thing that really encapsulates that feeling of fear and that feeling of uncertainty of landscape doing something. How tall was it? It was four meters. And how high up was it hanging? Um, I wanted it to be hanging uh, with 50 centimeters on the bottom, but um, unfortunately there was a whole lot of pipes and things at the top which were a little distracting so it was only 30 centimeters of the floor but at the it end. still felt like it was super tall mm. up in the space it was two two meters and 25 wide as well so it was really this thing think, that when you go in front of it 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 really cocoons and envelops you i think it was the biggest work in the whole exhibition it was probably the biggest work anybody's ever done was I mean, it the biggest you have ever done it's certainly the biggest i've ever done yeah. yes i mean i've done up to three <laughs> meters before but how did you manage to do all these huge works for this one exhibition because now we are talking i don't know like Eight and then what do you say? Two and a half times mm -hmm, cool. for it's so many square meters mm. of painting. No, I was. I mean, um, I mean, can we just talk about this whole work process? Like, how long does it take you to make one of these? So the black one we were talking about for a long time. Do you know how many work hours you put into this? Oh my goodness, don't, and, don't. And like an approximation. Yes. Ah, oh, my goodness, it's painful to even think about. So. <laughs> Obviously, it took me almost a year just to develop this process in yeah. the lab. To oh, make for the sure. Test yeah, samples. yeah. I mean, but but um, like so by the time actually painting on the painting. Yeah. So by the time I actually had the technique nailed, it was past December. Mm -hmm. We were already in January, and the work had to be installed in the beginning May. of May. That's right. Yeah. By the second of May. Yeah. And so, really, to make these pieces, I had five months. Yeah, less actually. I was probably at the end, at the mid, mid or end of January that I, I uh, had the technique ready. And you had a clear plan of what you wanted to do. You knew how many paintings you wanted to make. You knew how you wanted them to look. Almost yes. So okay. I, the big piece for me was something that I've had at the back of my head as a, as a nightmare haunting my dreams for quite a while. <laughs> um, but I had had this idea of Orpheus being this kind of very tactile painting, this very bodily thing, this mass, mm. this kind of huge carcass that's almost falling off the canvas and melting off it, rotting. I wanted to contrast that large thing with actually something very small, a 
a very something delicate, some little spark of light coming into light. So these two by two meters <laughs> became like small works. I, I in had the scale. intended to do something. So that these are some of the few test samples of what I was intending to do. Something that's about twenty to thirty centimeters. Something very yeah. very no, intimate. Pointing at smaller works on yeah. another wall. Yeah, these kind of little face mirror, twenty to thirty centimeters, small intimate things. But when I started working on Orpheus and the humongous scale of it and the, all this mass, it just put me in this mode of working that was incredibly energetic and incredibly vigorous. Large arm movements. Yes, very, very much about uh, feeling your way along the canvas, about letting the material speak and just saying, yes, whatever you want, I will do it, mm. and throwing it around. So it's very bodily, this process of working for yeah. you. Very physical, very, very physical. A lot of, uh, like, of backache. Is it like exercise? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, lifting 30 kilos in a, in a single canvas, if you have to do that up and down, it's, I mean, it's a workout. And yes, so sure. I had this idea, but I'm going to do two smaller test paintings. I'll do two meter paintings. That'll help me with the scale of the four meters. Ah, so they were actually tests these for were, the larger one. These were supposed to be like warm up. And now, um, of course, the listeners don't know when we are saying these two. It's because the black one we were looking at it has a twin to the left, which is red. Yes, it looks the the same. I want to say in quotation. So mm. of course, it's not the same, but it's kind of the same. Only that They're it's the same like in nature. It's rusty red instead of. Uh, grayish black blue black mm. but otherwise they are treated and made in the same style with the same mm. feel to it and the same look they're yeah. just different colors yeah, yeah. so when I started working on, on this kind of bigger scale it, it just something about it clicked and and so I I, I made these two paintings and I thought hmm uh, these, they are beautiful. These, wow! These, this is it. This is this yeah. is exactly what I was thinking about. Okay, the scale went out the window, but sometimes that happens. You know, you have to take accept uh, that sometimes the material and sometimes the process dictates what happens. So if you make something and it's wonderful, like then it exists. Yeah. It has like proven itself. Mm. And the red painting, um, as well, it just came about so naturally. So I'd made this black one first, mm. and I had had. I've been inspired by this idea of biomimicry. So looking at, for example, butterfly wings, which are also made of structural color, mm. they usually work with an underlying layer of pigment mm. uh, that is usually dark brown or black. Uh, it's a melanin pigment, just like in our skin. And then the structural color happens on the top of that dark surface. And the dark surface provides the contrast for the color to really light up. And it's a lot about like light reflection and angles and that's right structure. Yeah. 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 So the nanostructure mm. reflects the light that's scattering onto the surface. So it's very kind of intuitive for me to choose black as the first color because that is mm -hmm. what nature does and that is how the <laughs> that is the perfect choice in a way. And so, but then I started wondering well, what happens when you put a color underneath a. a this this uh, strange color because um, obviously pigments work with substractive color theory. You know, you mix colors and and um, that determines what the shade is. Whilst with uh, 
this color that's made out of light works with additive light theory, which is a completely whole type of different color mixing. Uh, now let's not go into the uh, optics of it because I think it's quite com complex and uh, but it's really interesting though certainly. Um, but yes, I started wondering how do they interact together if there is a color. Um, well, maybe if I go into it very simply, uh, I think a lot of people will know that when you have a color that something is black, mm -hmm. it absorbs all the light, and that is why it's black. Mm -hmm. And this is why black sur uh, surfaces like uh, asphalt often become warmer because they absorb the light and that turns into heat energy. Because the albedo is very low. That's right. <laughs> that's the science word for the ability of a surface to reflect and um, uh, repel the light. And white has a very high albedo. Yeah, that's right. So white science. surfaces reflect a lot of the light out, which mm -hmm. is why they appear white to us. They All the wavelengths are uh, reflected back at us. Um, and black absorbs everything. So I started wondering um, if I chose one of the colors, uh, and I decided to go with red, it's one of the main wavelengths of color, um, that it's obviously then reflecting the blue wavelengths, everything except the red, right, back? Oh, so it's like a contrast thing, so you just look at the color wheel and you're like, what is the on the other side of red? Or No, 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 no it's... um. If you think about the light spectrum, like in yeah. a prism or a rainbow, you have at the top end uh, the slower wavelengths, starting from red, the slowest, going to orange, yellow, green, then blue. What do you mean and with slow? Do you mean like the wavelength itself? So it's like yeah. a, a big one and not like a short. Well, it's like um, so. How wide the curve yeah. is basically so the and slow a wide, wavelengths. And the wide curve is slow, like a base curve. But, it takes longer so time to reach somewhere. Slow, right? And then oh. the when you go into uh, the blues and purples, they're like really this tight little wave, this really energetic wave. Like uh, if your heart rate was very fast and you look at it on a monitor, you know, up and down. It's super interesting. I once, I'm sorry, I will break in here because I once was in this uh, performance installation thing uh, where you stay there over the night. It's like a creative boarding school kind mm -hmm. of, House of Futures, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, no, it's not. Oh, I'm sorry. Now I'm losing the words. Uh, but anyway, there was one exercise where it was about like colors and how they made people feel. And people thought that red made them like more intensely like experiencing mm -hmm. and that blue made them energetic. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, it is. So with the red painting, the reason it looks red is because... Sisters Academy, that's mm. what it's called. Sisters Academy. It absorbs all of those energetic blues and purple mm. wavelengths and it reflects black the slow wavelengths. Which okay. are the red wavelengths. So that's why it so appears the, red to us. The so red it, paint, it's sucked in all the energy. So the sun comes into the red paint and mm -hmm. the red paint like steals the blue waves from the sunlight and like returns red because it already has that so it doesn't need more. No, no. It uh, All of the... The sunlight comes in as white light mm -hmm. and white light consists of all the wavelengths. Yes. So the, all the seven colors of the rainbow. And when they hit that surface, uh, the surface absorbs... All of the other wavelengths, except the one that it ah. pokes out. So if it's red painting, then it's poked out the red wavelengths. 
okay. which are the slow ones. And so it's absorbed all the energetic ones. That's perhaps mm -hmm. why we see red color as being vibrant or energetic. But of course, it's, uh, colors are culturally dependent, so it's, it's, it's not a science in mm. itself, but it could be one of the reasons that we uh, associate red with, uh, um, with kind of energy. No, it was the other way, that it was the blue that made people feel oh, energetic. Red really? made them Normally. feel really like intense. Interesting. But this was just a performance mm. exercise where people had to have opinions on mm. colors. So I don't know. It's not like science. Mm. I mean, it's generically, just... people say that red symbolizes like energy and passion and vibrancy. yeah, passion, yeah. like intensity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But certainly, colors are like I said, cultural dependent. So yeah, it, yeah, of it course. depends on. But I think from. the red here, with how you have treated it, makes it look like um, copper or bronze or something like mm. so one of some of these materials that you can also chemically treat. To have iridescent rainbow effects. Mm, absolutely. I was interested in well, playing with the idea of the oil slick on water. Um, I was doing a lot of thinking about Finnish lakes. Mm. And a lot of Finnish lakes are very rusty red because they have such a deep base of red. Uh, do they um, have a lot of iron? Yep, yeah, a lot of rust and iron oxide yeah. in them. Um, so that's where the color comes from. Yeah. And also just... I've, I've done all of this research into reactive pigments and pigments that change uh, in the kind of uh, preamble to this work with structural color. So I really wanted to work with pigments that are testimonies to the kind of a record of um, time changing. So things that oxidize. Oxidation is, of course, a process that reveals aging. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of where I went from. Uh, and as well, this idea of carbon, fossil black, and uh, red iron oxide being very, very kind of <laughs> at the core of the history of painting. These are the pigments that the cave painters used, right? These, this, this is the very most elementary pigments that painters have worked from the very birth of the art of painting. Do you feel like a piece of metal that is rusting is like living or dying? Absolutely, it's uh, it's decaying. It's um... so you think it's dying, but in a way, it's living because it's like actually changing, right? I think in it's it's. There's something about that moment of noticing your immortality that makes you feel alive. So when something is dying, then it must therefore, by definition, be living. Hmm. Oh, that's a good. Uh, it's a duality. It's this duality, you know, <laughs> <laughs> life and death. Um. And so, um, what is the reason that you are creating these with all this like existential? Uh, approach to your paintings and this idea of life and death and change and and natural landscape and things what is the reason that you still choose to do them with like uh synthesized uh, oil paintings and all this like uh, these these materials that will not only make it last longer but you could also have created it with very uh, organic nat natural in this way that everything is part of nature mm -hmm. of course But some people make these types of like science landscape paintings with like 
actual dirt and clay or mm. rust or you know things that will not preserve very well but mm. will is more like directly from ground to surface kind of what is your uh, reasoning for still creating them in this like um artificial way if we can call it that well i think in in a way the history of painting is incredibly important for me and i look at a lot of historical paintings mm. when i Um, work so there is something about a painting as an entity that creates a closed world mm. whether it's it's a traditional landscape where you kind of feel like you're looking through a window into a scene it's a closed world that sucks you in and you're completely and totally immersed in it a traditionally literally framed yes yes <laughs> yeah. absolutely and so it's there is something incredibly potent for me in in that experience of being sucked into something mm. um, and so that's that's one thing that um, is central to me uh, the other is I think my thinking about the kind of scales of matter uh, this cycle of matter really um, in the universe is a bit more I think of it more on maybe a, like a deep time or more of a geological or cosmic frame. Mm. So we're we're really all born from you know cosmic stardust. Yeah, we are. And I'm... one day, in a million years, you will be once more cosmic stardust. Whatever it is on this planet, um, all these materials, everything around us, these are just their current transformations. These are the current forms of existence mm. and that's maybe also why I find the process very beautiful because there is this idea of the conservation of energy in nature this kind of law of conservation which means that everything is recycled and also but nothing is ever lost all the all these materials that have been here in the universe have been here since the Big Bang. Everything surrounding you, all of this, these particles that formed in that one instant and are being constantly recycled. And there's something really, really lovely about the thought of like standing in front of a painting and experiencing and seeing the change of state of these materials and knowing that that you're a part of this kind of cosmic recycling where where everything is seen as valuable. Uh, and there's this um, famous philosopher and ecologist, Donna Haraway, mm. who has a wonderful saying, which is, uh, we are compost, mm. uh, which I find really beautiful. And, you know, something will grow out of that. And, uh, it, you know, you don't know what the next transformation for us is, um, But I think the idea of living and dying paintings for me is about coming to grips with our own mortality. It's about facing it because you really need to see see that moment of life and death to understand it, to be in touch with your surroundings. And perhaps maybe that way you can also see that your current the end of your current cycle is just a transformation into another state of matter. It's not 
it's the beginning of a new thing. So this is what you think about when you grind away with your coal <laughs> lumps and uh, yeah. yeah, because of course you are really like uh, man manually like tapping into this uh, matter changing. How do you turn a lump of coal into a to paint? Do you mix it with oil or like what do you do with it? Yeah, you can use a whole bunch of binders, but um, first and foremost, there's uh, just a uh, raw brute strength so you take it under the hammer yeah you need to polarize yeah, it then, first yeah and, and then, then a pestle and mortar and you bash it up and uh, then and you have to dust. filter it until you get a fine enough grain mm. and then you can mix it with whatever your choice of pigment is for me usually um, oil paints but I do also do inks what's the difference like well ink doesn't have oil but what does it have instead um, well, there's uh, a bunch of options you could use in ink as a medium, um, uh, but a lot of them usually have are alcohol-based. Okay. And then there's a small bit of binder. Um, what have I used as binder recently? Do you have any training within chemistry or anything before studying here? Like, how did you learn all this stuff? Did you just like? Google a lot? <laughs> it was a lot of Googling, a lot of trial and error. Um, I did work at a company called Factum Arte okay. in Madrid, which um, is kind of this experimental lab for contemporary artists. Uh, and they work at the edge of a lot of digital technology, 3D, um, as well as a lot of combining traditional crafts with modern Hmm. newer techniques to help artists solve the protect, like practical production problems or you know hmm. help them create their vision whatever it may be so i think there that was a really significant part of my training this kind of traditional artisan artist workshop this kind of renaissance workshop really yeah uh, and, uh, and um, yeah that's something outside the academic institutions but still very much about making works for some major artists. So when you say you're self-taught, you just you mean you've been really good at seeking out places that could teach you indirectly, like uh, working in a museum mm. or yeah, this? Yeah, just a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And um, But I, I also feel that's quite important. I think a lot of people uh, come to art universities very young, not knowing what they necessarily want from their painting and the institutions can impose a lot of ideas onto you whilst I came here already knowing what it was that was special to me and worthwhile and meaningful. I mean there's a reason why a lot of academies don't want you if you're uh, more than mid-twenties then you're already too old they want you mm. young enough that they can shape your brain. Mm. But that means everybody's being shaped by the same yes. mold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone of the same age yeah. and come from like kind of fortunate, privileged backgrounds that yeah. they can study in an art academy or whatever. And they, a lot of them end up doing the exact same looking things, which is, yeah. yeah, there's uh, something there that's not necessarily terribly exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I agree. Uh, I think we accidentally skipped over before when we talked about work hours. So... These were made as like a uh, part of like the process for making the big 
piece that was mm. your dream but like how many hours still goes into like one of these or into the big one like can just so that people have a grasp of what we're actually talking about mm. difficult to say i was doing so the just shy of five month period that i was doing them i was working easily 12 hours a day Like seven six. days a week? Mm, I'd usually do about six and then half a day on a Sunday. Okay. Just because yeah. you need a little bit of time to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes. Or um, like wash your hair or whatever. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of uh, yeah. work. And I was um, working till the very last minute. So once, uh, especially with Orpheus being, and these works being so reactive to the environment, I had to finish them in the gallery. Oh, when they were being installed? They, no, when they were on the wall. You were painting while they were actually already hanging I, in I the was, exhibition? I was doing the final edits. Yeah. Were they still wet in, when the exhibition opened? No, 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 goodness no. This, uh, I, I've chosen my materials very carefully. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that I was able to do these projects so quickly. Because normally oil paint takes forever yes. to dry, right? Yes, that's why I've gone for this kind of special resin oil that hardens very quickly so how long does it take to cure like a layer so the layers will cure in about overnight oh that's really quick yes but it also means Now, you can't change things it yes so so it really is about being at the mercy of the material mm. and that is the surface dry so it will these paintings are technically still drying yeah they yeah but they're be, not fully cured know, yeah, they, yeah they will cure for a year at least but um but yeah just, until they fully harden yeah but I mean, so one of, if, if the listeners don't know, one of the main differences to people working with acrylics or oil is um, oil you can keep like modifying or modeling because it stays wet for so long that people can blend layers and add and subtract. and But basically they can keep working on the same wet surface in this like almost endless process if they really want to mm, mm. but it also means that it takes a really long time to dry mm. when it's finally done so i think probably a lot of oil paintings go more or less wet onto walls in exhibitions because people don't finish them weeks in advance they everyone are working until the last minute mm. certainly as an art, art school where yeah exactly yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite t tight often Okay, but so... But so that's as well why um, I had to really carefully choose the materials, and that's why a lot of the underlayers and the underpaintings are done in inks, for example, so those dry instantly, um, so then you can get, get along with the process. But So I would do, I would do a layer, and then it would need to sit overnight. So did you work on, like, both of them at the same time, these two? Yeah, more, more or less, so the kind of with the black painting leading a little but the, um, uh, just because they're two meter paintings where is there space to do two, yeah, two yeah, meter yeah. paintings at the same but time. then like one layer on the black and yeah. then that has to dry and then you can like Lift turn around yeah. and then that's right paint on the red one yeah well i do the same I, i will have multiple projects and then like when my eyes cannot focus on the video editing anymore i turn around and yeah. then i do something else And yeah, and with this red painting, um, it's called uh, "Color Out of Space." Also, uh, what is it called? "Color Out of Space." Um, also referencing um, a painting by or um, a short story by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, it has a surface that I've made by overstretching the canvas. Okay. Uh, 
and then applying starch to it to like really tighten it taut uh, and you can see that it's created this scarring like stretch marks all across the surface the whole wow. whole surface of the painting uh, yeah it has this uh, scar tissue across it <laughs> so it was kind of tensioned uh, and then I once it had cracked I loosened it up and uh, hung it and a, so this was on purpose yes so you create your own frames and canvases from the beginning you uh, build your own frames everything, and everything yeah I cut from the very where for very like start from the wood to the stretchers everything mm. I, I've done the um the wood workshops here myself and did you know that you could create this effect by overstretching and adding starch or is that something you have realized from accidentally overstretching another canvas and then trying to fix it with starch no this was the first time I'd done it um and it was an accident but an accident that uh, I was well I was really looking for accidents actually because mm -hmm. I was I was trying to learn to listen to what the materials say and do and so I was tensioning this canvas using starch uh, and my <laughs> my original intention had been to just fill in the weave the, the texture of the canvas mm. uh, even though I bought quite fine textured canvas but just to make a really really smooth surface I thought I'd fill it in with starch with what starch? kind of starch I believe it was just regular wheat wheat starch okay yeah very traditional material used in um, painting mm. um, and just like with starching clothes if you iron them uh, it just gives you a kind of crisp hard firm uh surface mm. so you can also use it to make a very smooth canvas surface yes absolutely um and i started noticing as i did it that it's it really tightened a lot more than i had expected mm. and i noticed these little cracks forming and i was just like this is perfect <laughs> this is this is perfect and and i i just went for it i tightened so the much canvas. personality coming already <laughs> Yeah, this nice. is one of those things where the material starts talking to me about the landscape, about drying cracks of clay and that idea of of uh, something evaporating and drying and evaporating and drying. And so I went with this process of doing the canvas surface as if it was earth. Mm. Yeah, this And I really think, I mean, I also talked with Roberto in the last episode about this, like a lot of the art process is this uh, fine balancing between the plan and the vision you had mm. and then what the material tells you it wants mm. to do along the way and like pragmatic uh, decisions and compromises mm. that present themselves that you kind of need to deal with and consider Because, yeah, you might have an idea and then you start working with something and it just kind of, like, takes you somewhere or it, like, decides it wants to do something beautiful and then it's, like, how, when to stick to your vision and when to respect the project you are with or the material you are actually sitting with mm. and, like, kind of find this nice little dance between those two, mm. like, with a, a leg in each of these areas and then just keeping balance I, it's nice if it can be this ongoing conversation with yourself or like tension but in an interesting way not mm. not like problematic 
Yeah. Or I maybe think... problematic, but like in a way that yields some good results. Yeah, see, the dialogue with nature is really a dialogue through materiality. Mm. And but for I me, th- it's also with editing sound, even like in software on a computer or whatever. Or no, but that is. It's, video it's, or something. Sound waves are a part of nature. It's, it's Or video or anything, you know, I work with something and then... Yeah. Or, you know, doing graphic design or something, video, you would start layering, you're having some effect or, I don't know, like you had an idea of how it was supposed to look, but that didn't actually look that good. Or Mm -hmm. And then you do something else and you're like, oh, wow, this looks super cool, however. So maybe I will just like change the style now. (laughs) Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. For me, it's, I have this underlying idea of growth and decay. Mm Mm-hmm. And when something that I do clicks with that idea, then I know this is this is the part where I've had an idea and the material has brought something to that idea, and then we're in we're in tune with our conversation. So, so did you start painting the big one after these two were done, and you kind of knew now this is what I want to do, or was it like? Did you just have all of them going at the same time and this massive dialogue between everything? I had... So I started with these two two-meter, this pair of twinned paintings, mm-hmm. and I had them more or less finished um, when I started working on the large one. So and I was working on the frames and the stretchers for the large four-meter painting, uh, w- while these two were drying, that was just because wasn't yeah, it? with a four meter painting, it was uh, I made three three canvases and made it into a triptych. So so it can be also separated for transport and storage. Absolutely, that practical idea. Yeah, so, yeah, and just physically manhandling it and moving it around the studio and lifting it up and down. And do you do these things alone, like stretching two by two canvases, or and yes. moving them and stuff? Of course. Okay. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, well, we, I mean, we have a lot of equipment. So we have a, a an air pressure nail staple gun, for example. Okay, so yeah. if, if I was doing this manually, it would be tougher work. But, uh, you know, with a few bits and bobs of modern technology, yeah. a nice circular saw and... <laughs> Yeah, but it, it really is uh, when I have these like moments of uh, reformatting and re-exporting the same video file twelve times before I find whatever this random media player and projector will accept to compromise <laughs> on, you know, and like running between like computer room and installation space back and forth or. And just like reformatting SD cards in eternity, you can fall into these like black holes of like, the, I don't know, the technology is just like uncooperative mm. or like cables and you don't have the right adapter or yeah, many a times in these like night times, like on the eight export, I've been like, fuck me, why did I not just become a painter? You come in here in your studio, you have your little rolling trolley table with all your pencils. They are already like, they're wet, they're in their like solvent thing, so they're ready to paint with. You have all your paints maybe already ready. You have your canvas, and then you go and you just physically relate to your work 
with the tools that you always use and I know it's not so simple but <laughs> but when you like when you keep reformatting an SD card and it just does not work somehow whatever for whatever reason sometimes mm -hmm. it just feels like this like twilight moment of there's a lot of oh. hidden stuff that happens behind the artwork isn't there yeah that is absolutely necessary to enabling the artwork but which can be very difficult and frustrating but sometimes i i mean i i do sometimes do more bodily work but i also do a lot of this like computer stuff And when it's just about like cables or formats or connections, you know, then, mm -hmm. yeah, then I am a little bit jealous of people who like physically have like mm -hmm. the, the brush strokes in their hands and, and like can feel the paint and put it on with their hands if they want to. Mm. I don't know. It just, somehow it's just more I'm, honest or I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I'm running into this problem myself at the moment. So with... With making canvases uh, and stretcher frames, that's something I'm, I've been doing for a while and I'm very comfortable with using quite large power tools. Mm. And, you know, if you want to do a four-meter painting that's 60 kilos heavy, you're not going to find a ready frame for that. You can't just go buy a ready stretcher, but you have to make it yourself in order for the canvas to be able to hold 60 kilos of weight. It's just, you have yeah. to do it. And also it's not financially viable for people who really make a lot of big paintings to just like ready buy everything, right? Like, It's very expensive. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So Absolutely. there's also a reason why people make everything mm -hmm. themselves. But... I have been doing this recent project for my upcoming show at uh, Galleria Rayatila uh, called Fleur du Mal. Mm -hmm. And there are these paintings on copper which have a heat-sensitive black surface paint. Um, and this black surface, when exposed to heat, it becomes transparent and reveals the painting hiding underneath it's like it. like magic. Yeah. But all these little paintings, I've been trying to build the heat pad at the back. On with, the, like, as part of the painting? Yes, to hide at the back a, a heat pad that can take the painting up to 30, 35 degrees. Does it only happen one time, or is it like a process that is reversed? And oh, then yes, back and forth as the temperature changes. <gasps> ah, so this is so a, I've been... Uh, trying to learn to use delay loop timers I've done the basic <laughs> course in programming uh, and electronics here at the university mm -hmm. but I feel for you I mean it's it's a little bit above my <laughs> understanding of uh, programming and electronics to do something especially something that involves heat because you're always concerned about a fire and causing a, causing electrical damage um, with those kind of voltage numbers. So even with painting, especially this kind of experimental painting that's really kind of trying to push that edge of changing paintings and making things that genuinely uh, respond and react to their environment, uh, you do run into the same kind of territory of problems, I'm afraid. Yeah, and of course, when you're doing stuff like this, where it's like uh, like chemistry lab style of like working with uh, 
toxic solvents and um, mixing things in what I guess is very measured ratios and and all this. Of course, it's also it's different. And I also don't mean to like oversimplify someone else's work. I think we just like the grass is always greener, right? Mm. So when you get fed up with your own work, you like send a thought to those who do something very different yeah. and you think I could have chosen that I could be wearing a nice some nice clothes <laughs> I could not be in a mask that I can't breathe in I could not be covered in dirt and paint all the time and wearing sweaty ladies gloves that's yeah. actually true one time in the old school building there was like someone had put oil paint on the wall in the elevator and then I got some on my jacket and I was like Oh fuck! It's a new jacket now. I got oil paint on the on the sleeve, and then my friend said, "Well, you are in an art academy. You are studying here." And I was like, "Yeah, but I study in the media department <laughs> in the super clean floor where you're not allowed to paint and stuff. You know, oh, I am God. not dressing for oil paint, like because I work by a computer." Oh, darling, yep, that's it's one of the. Uh realities of being a painter is you're always messy. covered in paint yeah and i'm i'm a very clean painter but it just it the stuff <laughs> has a will and a mind of its own yeah and it's really clean and you can't be too clean you have to respect the process mm. can i just quickly ask so there's like a big gray cloud of test for the other work that we're looking at here to the left the audience don't know it's like this, what did you call it? This uh, it's polyurethane, which foam. is is it this on the spray that then becomes mm-hmm. this like yellow that kind of yellow foam that you use to insulate windows. Yep. So it's liquid foam to start with, and then it becomes like hard. Okay, and so you have made like a storm cloud on a one and a half times one and a half meters yep. canvas, and the, it's a test for the. Big Orpheus. Yeah. Do you consider this to be now a work in itself, or is it still just a test? Um, I'm definitely going to continue with this and make okay, it into the final piece. Yeah. Um, I just needed uh, a canvas to work with um, to understand the scale transfer, really. So having done so many little test plates and a lot of my paintings that I've done. Uh, which you can see around the studio that were done in preparation for this large painting, uh, you know, things that are 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters, you know, quite quite small paintings. Um, so when you're scaling up the, the relief of this kind of mass material, this impasto source that's on top, uh, and its relationship to the canvas, which is a flat surface, is actually very, very important. Is it hard to make it stick? No, it's not hard to make it stick, but it's very easy to go over the top. It's, so I have to apply it when it's on the floor. Yes, of course. And yeah. uh, when something's on the floor, the height of it looks very small. Uh, right? So you might yeah, be doing yeah. something that's... So 10 oh. centimeters up from the floor looks like nothing, but 10 centimeters out Off from the, the wall, wall is a huge Yeah, thing. okay. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And then if you're doing something that comes out of the wall, like Pinocchio's nose, what is the point of having the canvas anymore? 
Um, so to kind of keep that relationship of it being a painting of a closed world that you can absorb mm -hmm. yourself into, it was very important to understand how much the painting needs to grow out of the canvas. Mm. And so I had this test piece to help me because I, mid-process with the large Orpheus, I realized I had gone overboard. <laughs> But also uh, when something I had, is really large scale, it's super hard to comprehend it's what is actually... It's incredibly difficult. That's why it was so really saved my life having this uh, medium-sized painting to help me. Because I had to, in the end, remove six bin bags worth of... <laughs> yes, yes, six bin Just bags like... worth of excess mass from the surface of, of this uh, four meter painting. Which had already like dried and everything? Yes. Did you have to like chisel it off or what? Uh, saw it. You off. sawed part of your painting off. It's very oh, rough. Yes. Oh yes, it was physical oh. indeed. Uh, rip and saw and then reapply. <laughs> uh, which I'm very glad I did because if I hadn't, we wouldn't be talking about a 60 kilo painting. We would be talking about a 100 kilo yeah, painting. Yeah, no, it would be <laughs> impossible. Actually, that's a really interesting point. I thought that painting was a little bit of a boring medium for me before I started studying art. Well, not that I can't enjoy a painting, but like it, I didn't have that much interest in, in painting. Mm. Uh, but then I started talking to all these painters here who studied and realized like when you look at a painting, you look at so much of what you can't see, like hundreds of hours of work, but like so many hours of just staring at it. Maybe you are looking at three paintings that were painted and then completely wiped off and removed mm. and then repainted and removed again. So maybe when you're looking at a painting, you're looking at like five ghost paintings that have existed momentarily on the same canvas that have been deemed not good enough to exist And then, like, completely removed, or like your Orpheus was like, yeah, six bin bags of like painting that was then sawed off and aggressively like demolished and thrown out. And like, so when you're staring at this work, there's so much of the work that you are looking at that, that is like a ghost of mm -hmm. it, or like the shadow of the work, something invisible. Yeah. And especially when you're talking about the learning phase of doing something, mm -hmm. this experimental, something completely new, uh, it does often mean that you have to just throw yourself at it and also be willing to admit defeat and say, okay, this, this went wrong, I know what's wrong now, I'm gonna yank it out, rip it off, let's start again, let's try again. And then as you go along with the process, you have less and less accidents then, which is well, good because... You get to know the materials. Yeah, and, and then it's good because then you don't obviously have to waste so much material as well. But in terms of painting as a medium, I think painting is in a really exciting place at the moment. Okay. I mean, for a long time, everybody was talking about how, oh, painting is dead, you know. It's this land art and installation and new media is fascinating. And painting was in a little bit of uh, a rut. I thought really like was always just treasured. No, I think that there was this... I feel like the art schools always treasure painting a lot. A little while ago, it was seen as very out of fashion. Very, It was seen very old-fashioned and not very experimental. Okay. Whereas a lot more, a lot of other mediums were able to 
uh, maybe address issues of modernity and be more con you know contemporary and, and well maybe it's also like we talk about you are like inventing your style here and it takes a long time but at the same time like five different versions of VR technology have been developed yeah. or <laughs> yeah but I think painting is, has, has gone back into that experimental phase where it's it's decided to throw out the you know rule book and redefine what it what it's going to be and, and there's a lot of painters doing things differently and 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 redefining and and exploring what it is that painting could do which is really really exciting and enjoyable uh, and there's this reconnection to materiality or to the real world I there's say, a lot of the, science and yes. art intersection at the yeah. moment and so and yeah. we're moving away maybe from romanticism and fantasy and dystopia into something that uh, is a bit more tactile and in contact and not so clean and pure and idealized maybe which which I find really really exciting about uh, painting in this moment and you can see it here at the academy as well uh, this year we had a record number of uh, new students joining the uh, painting department mm. far more popular than any of the other departments it always is like that it's always the biggest department but with this year was a new record so it's okay really but it had my whole time mm. studying here and I think years before that it has always been the biggest department in the school and this year was one of the first where I felt like the degree show was not emphasized on the painters like dramatically like uh, that James who did the curation actually um, was really good at fitting everyone in quite equally uh, but I think in many years it has been like overwhelmingly a painter's show and everyone else have kind of been like stuffed in a hallway or in a corner where there's space for a video monitor or it's like I do think in this academy painting is really treasured as this like mm. holy grail of of like conservative art education it might be that it's experimental within it but there is still some kind of this like the old mm. royal side of art somehow I yes. don't know but that's that's exactly it there's a lot of people love that conservative, idealized painting. Was I think now a lot of people are being attracted to it for new reasons, mm. or kind of ulterior processes. At least I enjoy painting a lot, a lot more now after I have talked to all these people like you <laughs> and other people who tell me about all these like um, their interest in it and their process and what they think about when they make it. Or like so now when I look at a painting, I don't just look at the surface. I I look at like uh, people's process with it in a different way and so I hope people listening to this podcast will also next time they see a painting look at it like just one more time or in a different way I don't know mm -hmm. and think about maybe some of these things even without reading the gallery text and whatever but just <clears throat> yeah I don't know to think about like someone grinding up glass and <laughs> <laughs> it is very medieval isn't it yeah but you have your whole vibe going on with this like old school uh, thing so I think it's part of the whole aesthetic no it's I, I think it fits really well to imagine you like grinding coal that you sourced yourself I think that's nice um is there something that we forgot to talk about that I 
something you would have liked me to ask you or something you want to mention? Mm. I can't think of anything now. No. <laughs> uh, no, it's just it's just been such a such a pleasure and such an exciting uh a process so yeah it's, it's quite nice to uh kind of sit down and uh, think about how how dramatic uh, a metamorphosis I've been through really going from doing these paintings that are very traditional and deciding to then just literally abandon my palette and my brushes in the <laughs> dust and really don't like jump into the deep end uh, of an unknown black pool of water in, and, you and know, that's what you've been doing since then. In chase of this iridescent, immaterial mm. color, uh, it's nice. To, yeah. You haven't painted any like a traditional landscapes since you started this. I don't think I will. No, no, I, 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 not no regrets. I'm not going to look back. And also, I mean, this master's degree. Thesis project it, it it kind of structured the study program in the way that you are immersed in the same project for a year and a half basically, mm. working on the same work for a year and a half first like planning and thinking about it conceptualizing preparing and then like in the actual work production process like you say you've been since January maybe and then after it's been exhibited you have to like um, finish your written thesis about it. So like analyzing, reflecting on the work, uh, reflecting it to like historic and contemporary theory and ideas and art history. And then you have to hand in this like written analysis of your own work. And then you have to go up and present it at a, an oral examination where you have to like kind of defend and present this whole thing, like written and creative components And so all in all, it's about one and a half years, almost two years that you are immersed in the same process, which is, for me, a very long time to spend with the same work. Mm. Usually I don't stay with one piece or one project that long. Mm. It's I don't know how it is for you. Well, I think as a painter, I work in a very serial manner, so I feel like I've only just found this form of painting and so the series is and going to really be ongoing. we've 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 only just gotten to know each other i'm still very much yeah. in the honeymoon phase ah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm i'm really looking forward to uh the kind of yes this master's degree phase of the cycle is ending and now this kind of new cycle phase is beginning where i I get to really start building a more intimate relationship and a deeper knowledge with this material and this way of painting. And I'm looking forward to building a body of work. Um, so you yeah. want to continue this series? Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm completely mesmerized. I'm absolutely... Yeah, well, that's beautiful. I, I'm, I'm, I'm down the rabbit hole, Alice. That's so nice. Uh, and, yeah, I'm just I'm really grateful for my mentors and, and the Uh, all of the support from the university that I received, I I was literally allowed to go absolutely mad scientist crazy, run down the spiral staircase in chase of dreams and hallucinations of color. And uh, everybody was like, yeah, 
Wow, go for it. Nice. Here's here's some uh, ethanol for the fuel, the fame. Like here you go. Um, but I mean, the results are so beautiful, and I'm really, I'm just, I'm impressed that you made so many these very large works. I, I mean, to like. Uh, one thing is to make the small tests and then like even mentally kind of like upscale them and keep track of that is one thing, but then to also like actually manage to make this many massive pieces that then also fit together well is like, I think, impressive work done in these months. Mm. I mean, being self-taught, it's it's been very special and I'm very grateful that I've the works have received so much attention. Mm. Uh, I received the Anita Snellman Award for these paintings. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, but above above all, really, the acknowledgement and, and all of the, the response that I've received from fellow painters mm. uh, has, has been incredibly rewarding, considering that I've kind of worked in my own little vacuum for a long time and... Yeah, to see the paintings in the world and see how people respond to them is is. Uh, yeah, of course. A great pleasure. Wow, it will be so interesting to, for you to see them in different space and different light, huh? Mm. And do you do they belong together now? Like, are these twins or could they be separated? Oh, they're they're alpha and omega. They uh, they. They uh, they belong together, but they can exist separately. Uh, so you could like sell one of them or exhibit only one of them. Yeah, I think they're very they're very flexible in what they can stretch to. I mean, mm. together they they turn into something different than what they are when they are apart. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do hope in the future that at some point they might be shown together again. But I I think they're also very self self sufficient. Uh, but yeah, I feel like there's a lot of fruitful, unknown territory to still explore in 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 the process, in the colors I can find through mm-hmm. it, in yeah, the sure. ways I can exhibit these paintings, in the way they could be displayed. Uh, so yeah, I just I look forward to getting back into work after after a wonderful summer holiday. Do they now have an up and down that is correct or would you like flip them at some point? Um, I think... I certainly feel that this they have found their right orientation. Mm-hmm. But as, as all things in space and time, nothing has a defined up or down. Well, but... Okay, thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, we were supposed to do it um, in the gallery while they were all hanging there, but it was really busy time because I was finishing my degree work. And, you know, yeah, hundreds of hours, long days and nights, and so we didn't manage. But I'm really happy that we could come and do it here in your studio. Um, yeah. Nice. Oh, good with an in-depth painting episode. That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have some kind of like website or social media yes. you want to share with people? Yes, I can give you my calling card. Yeah, you can also just like say it out loud what people oh. could look for. I mean, I will yes, also add, I will add links in the show notes, but it's good to also say it. Mm-hmm. So uh, my website is lauralow.art. And love, it's L O W E. Yes. 
and my Instagram tag is six eyed cat. But you, I'm sure you can find me through the search with Laura Lowe as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I will definitely add links for that. And then people can maybe check out some of your work there. Yeah. And if you're in Tampere in uh, September, please come and see Fleur du Mal at uh, Galleria Rajatila. They can see these works there? There'll be some smaller paintings. Um, okay. But I'm doing a few of these. Probably this lovely dark green one that's uh, in process behind us. Sure. Emerald green. It's a nice color. <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you to Laura and thank you for listening to those out there. Yeah, I guess that was it. <laughs> Do you want to say goodbye? Thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Thank, thank you for listening. Hope, Hope you enjoyed it. it.